What's going on, everybody? Welcome back. Episode 92. Today I'm interviewing Double D, Mr. Derek Dombeck. Derek is from Wisconsin. Interesting dude. Got involved with the business back in 2003. Um, this is a 45-minute interview. It, it, we were just talking and really interesting dude. Has a lot of good information. Lost everything in, in the 08 crash and got involved then with creative financing and private lending. Opened up a private lending shop. He does a lot of creative deals with lease options and options and subject twos and wraps and just if you're a, a newbie or somebody who's in the growth stage you're going to get a lot of nuggets out of this guy he is uh and he's writing a couple of books and he's giving the books away for free uh, at the end no no cost no obligation just send him an email he'll send you out the books um interesting dude you're going to enjoy this episode i know i did time flew hope you guys enjoy it Welcome to Unstoppable Real Estate Investing Wealth. My name is Billy Alvaro, a.k.a. The Unstoppable VA, former billion-dollar mortgage banker, gone bankrupt, turned professional real estate investor, where each week you'll learn the tools, strategies, systems, and secrets myself and other highly successful real estate investing entrepreneurs use to start, grow, and scale their businesses, creating massive profits, and how you can too. And we'll teach you how to put those profits to work so you no longer have to. Get ready to finally experience financial freedom and generational wealth. Now let's get started. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. What is going on, everybody? This is Billy Alvaro, Unstoppable BA, here with another episode of Unstoppable REI Wealth. Today I'm interviewing a gentleman, Derek Dombeck. Mr. Dombeck is from Wisconsin. He brings a diverse background. I'm going to love this interview. Guys doing lending, doing creative financing, doing fix and flips, has a beautiful wife, what I understand. So, Derek, welcome to the show, brother. Hey, thanks for having me, Billy. I, I really uh, was looking forward to a kind of a, a mellow interview today, but it looks like we're going to be a little <laughs> bit more upbeat. So, this is going to be awesome. Grab your coffee, buddy. Grab your coffee. All right. So, listen, quick background on you. Just give our audience, like, you, you've been doing this for a while, brother, since 2003. So, let's just go back a little bit. I know you said you're long-winded sometimes, so don't give me like a three-hour answer. Just uh, want to go into exactly what you did uh, back in the day to get into this. Yeah, so the short version of a very long 18, 19 years, I, I came out of, as a construction worker out of high school, so I always had that work ethic and that you know work with my hands type of uh, background. And uh, my wife and I started just like most people. We bought a couple fixer-upper properties as you know rentals. And then we started, um, while we were growing our portfolio in Wisconsin with some fixer-uppers, we started building new construction projects in Florida. And a little thing that called 2007 happened. Oh, yeah. Got our ass kicked. And that's when we realized we had zero control over our business. We, we used banks for everything. And when the banking industry shut down, we had no choice. We had no options. And that was a point in time where we had to decide, do we quit, tuck our tail and, you know, go crawl back on the porch or do we come out swinging? And we were forced to learn how to get creative, learn how to take on private capital, business partners, whatever it took. But I learned so many strategies because I had to, but I also wanted to. Now I look at it as if a bank should be second or third priority in putting your deals together. And I, I just love doing creative deals because you can you can help a, a homeowner. You can do it without a whole lot of your own money or any if you're good enough at it. Yep. 
and and you're not a slave to the bank. You're not a slave to any institution. So that's a very abbreviated version. <laughs> so look, we have a lot in common because 2007, eight crash happened and I ended up going upside down $14 million in the hole. So I get uh, the pain of starting over. How long was your setback? How many years or months did that last before you actually started getting back at it? Well, I never quit. So I was always, you know, I, I took on a partner right away as soon as I could and using his credit, but we were still using banks because I didn't yeah. know any different. So we're using his credit, splitting deals 50-50. So I never slowed down in that regard. As far as getting back on our feet, it was about four years. Yeah. It really was. It, people don't realize it takes time. When you get this, the wind knocked out of your sails like that, you know, if, if you're resilient like you and I are, we get back up. But it's just one word, time. It takes yeah. time to get yourself back up and get at it. And, you know, every day getting out of bed was a struggle, man, trying to go out there and make things happen. But I realized that if I didn't do it, nobody was going to hand it to me. I needed to get back here and start work, start working again. But those beginning years, I'm sure you experienced the same thing, Derek. It's a lot of energy, man. It takes a lot of energy to get something off the ground. It does. And, and I know now what my biggest mistake was in the early years or the first half of my career in my business was I was a closet investor. I, I didn't go out and scream it from the rooftops what I was doing and I didn't build a network. So I fast forward to now, like when COVID hit, for example, we've got such an extensive network all across the country and other parts of the world that we all collaborated. And for most of my friends and my network and my masterminds that I host, 2020 was our best year ever. Good for you. And a lot of people freaked out because if they didn't have people to turn to, which I didn't in 2007, and that was my own fault. My wife and I were on an island. We were just trying to figure it out. Didn't, you know, didn't know what to do. How do you feel now that you're out of the closet? <laughs> well, I don't know what kind of show this is, Billy. So I'm going to bite my lip. <laughs> now, good for you, though, bro. It, you know. A lot of guys, including myself, when I when I started doing this, I just didn't tell people what the hell I was doing. And the more quiet you are, the less opportunities are going to come your way, less opportunities with money, less opportunities with deals, less opportunities to join venture with people. It's important. And I think now with the you know social media and, and Internet's been out there for years, but leveraging platforms like this to get your name out there. If you're a good person, you do good deals and you have a good value system. You're going to attract those people to your tribe and those people who are going to want to vibe with you and do deals with you. Absolutely. And, you know, honestly, people ask me why I'm getting on podcasts and why I don't have my own. I don't have my own because I want to expand my network with your like you and, and everyone else. I, honestly, Billy, this is the 27th podcast I've been on in the last two months. Good for you. Man. It, it, but that's that's just for me to give back and expand my network. Right. Like yeah. I. It, it doesn't have any other ulterior motives other than to do what I didn't do back then. Mm -hmm. I just want to expand my network. It's going to come back to you tenfold. When, when givers are out there and all they do is give and they educate and they put out good content, you know the rule, man. It just it comes yeah. back to you tenfold. So, so good for you on that. This, you know, the people who listen to this podcast, they're in the start, grow, or scale phase. Now, I want to do a little bit mixed with you because you're, you have so many years of experience. And when you had to do your restart, as I'll call it, you got in. What did you do? Because you got away from the banks is what I heard you say earlier. So how did you go about constructing these deals without banks? So probably the biggest turning point, I, I took on a partner 
but that was again still using banks and and that partnership lasted a couple of years and we were just flipping houses uh, there wasn't i wouldn't say anything creative when i got to about 2012 2013 i met my current business partner and he his name is jeff jeff had never used a bank for any of his investments and had started in the mid 2000s and he was raising private capital and putting that to work along with doing that and learning how to take property take control of property using options leases sub to you know seller financing via notes and mortgages or land contracts all, all those different strategies are, are just a strategy we, we learned how to stack strategies so i might buy a property subject to that needs $20,000 worth of rehab. I'll bring in a financial friend for the $20,000, put them in a participating note, and then lease option the property out to uh, an end tenant slash buyer. So we're stacking the different strategies. And I learned how to do that through over a period of probably four or five years, you know, 2010 through about 2014. And some people learn by by listening i learn better by doing you know I, I hear of a strategy that's great until i'm actually in a deal working on the 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 pieces and parts and the paperwork it doesn't necessarily stick but once i do one and and it's it's stuck in my head now i can use that moving forward i can stack even more strategies yeah um it, it goes to prove like you said you were a contractor prior to get into this so working with your hands mm -hmm. doing the work is how it gets indoctrinated into your DNA. I like right. that. Yeah. And meanwhile, raising the private capital for our flips got to a point where Jeff and I had raised more capital than we could keep busy in our own deals. And we didn't want the our, our investors to go somewhere else. Uh, so we started lending. And we, we have a, a big network at this point across our region and starting to get across the country. But at that point, really just across Wisconsin, and uh what started out as a couple loans here and there turned into five a month and then 10 a month and you know now we're around 20 loans a month sometimes more and we still to this day do not take on any institute institutional capital everything is just private individuals that right now billy we're seeing a shift in the market right yep and if i had institutional money and they just watched you know the the fed raise interest rates multiple times they might start getting nervous and come in and just pull the rug out from underneath us. When we deal with private individuals, we can have those conversations with the private individuals. Some of them are getting nervous. Some of them are getting excited. I'm excited. I, this is like Christmas for me. I've been looking yeah. forward to this market shift for years. Yeah, it's going to shake right. out the week. Right. But that's the good thing about using only private capital with private people that you can have conversations with. and we can talk about what happens if our default rate goes up, which we have an extremely low default rate, but if it goes up, we already run an acquisition company in a, in a, you know, we have rentals. We, if we have to take some properties back, okay, maybe the investors are, are going to have to ride it out for a couple years, yep. but we put tenants in the properties, we cash flow them. And when the market, you know, comes back, we sell them off. Like we have those, the flexibility, but that all comes from conversations. I don't even like using the word negotiating because it's it's really just conversations and, and looking out for 
your partners, your investors, sellers, buyers, looking out for their best interests before your own. That's really what's made us so successful. Yeah, that's what's driving your success for sure. I can see that. I want to flip back because I do want to get into the lending side, but I want to flip back to the creative financing side. Mm-hmm. So are you still actively utilizing all the creative strategies that you've mentioned earlier, the sub two, the lease option, the wraps, yes. the seller financing? Okay. So with those types of deals, what's are you primarily doing them in your home state, Wisconsin? I do. Yeah. Uh, we, we are in a rural area, so we work a, about a 200 mile diameter. Damn, okay. um, so I do the majority of our deal structuring over the phone long before I go visit with the homeowners at the property. I would say if I had to put a percentage on it, 75 to 85% sure I'm going to close a deal or get a contract before I get in the car and drive to that property. So I've gotten very good at, at doing it over the phone and reading people over the phone and getting people to open up because you don't find a creative deal. You, you structure a creative deal and you structure that by finding out what their needs are and solving for X. You know, I don't think I really did very well in algebra in high school, but <laughs> you know, if I know their problem, I can solve for X. And so I, I, I can tell you one on, on Friday of last week. Um, yeah, let's go through that. Yeah, this this couple had reached out to me over a year ago. And at the time we were talking about buying their property subject to their mortgage and giving them a little bit of cash for their equity, but the house still needed fifteen, twenty thousand dollars worth of just cosmetics. And we we built great rapport. The deal never came together because they needed to find another house to live in, and it took them until last well a week and a half ago when they reached back out to us to find another house they didn't do a whole lot more to the house than they did when i was in it the first time over a year ago but we built such a good rapport they've been marketed to for this entire time and they did not call any other house flipper or real estate marketer they they picked the phone up and called me when they were ready so i can give you the numbers uh of course, these aren't going to be California numbers, but three bedroom, two bath, ranch house, 1800 square foot after repair value, about 225 to 235. They owe 106 on a 30 year fixed mortgage, three and a half percent interest with 28, 28 years left on it. They're, my strike price, I'm taking it down with a lease and an option. My lease amount is going to be exactly what their loan payment is right now which is like $850 and my strike price is 135 grand. I will give them $5,000 up front. And in my option, I have the right for one year to buy it outright for cash or subject to their mortgage. And then I just pay them out the remainder of their equity or the remainder of that purchase price in cash. So I've got two ways I can exercise the option. And in going, because I want to talk now to the guys who are listening that are new, right? In going about explaining to the sellers that you're going to keep an underlying debt in their name, but yet you're going to take control. And I want to get into how you take control if you do it in a trust or what, what mechanism you're utilizing. How do you go about addressing the objections that, you know, Mr. Seller, I'm going to act as the seller. Derek, you know, it sounds good, but man, I'm going to have this $105,000 mortgage and I'm responsible for, what if you don't pay? 
So Billy, what I would typically tell you is in, in the days of online banking, it's very easy for us to monitor each other. So we're going to share a login to your online um, mortgage payment. And you can see that I've made your payment or you can see if I didn't make your payment. The other part of this is I would preempt that saying to you, Billy, are you planning on doing anything with your credit in the near future that this could affect? Because you're buying another house. First and foremost, I have to make sure you can qualify for that next loan. So, so they are under contract to close on a house October 28th. By us leasing the property and signing a lease, now they can show that to their mortgage lender that they are no longer, or they have additional income coming in to cover that, that mortgage payment. Yeah. Okay. So that was important to them. Then I did continue the conversation saying, in the event that I, I bring in somebody that doesn't want to buy it outright or, or doesn't have the ability to right now, and they need some time to do a rent to own, are you okay with me keeping your loan in place? And I explain, I tell everybody the good, the bad, the ugly all the time. That is going to depend on, on the personality type of who you're talking to. Like for me, I, I make decisions very quickly. I I'm what's considered a driver. Yep. I don't do as well with analytical people because that's the furthest from what I am. So if I recognize Billy, that you are analytical, I would get a lot more in detail with, you know, charts, graphs, numbers, spreadsheets to, to hit your hot buttons and, and make you feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. If, if you were more of a social conscious person, meaning you really cared what was going to happen to the house, who was going to be living in it, didn't want it to be a rental property because you had the same neighbors for the last 20 years. Now I'm, if you're a social conscious type of individual, I'm going to focus more on what am I going to do to improve the neighborhood? What am I going to do to improve the house? So I factor in as quickly as I can figure out what your personality is, I shift the way I talk to people. Okay. So in this case, the deal we're talking about that's, that's going down right now, they are very similar to me. They are not analytical. They just want no bullshit. Give us the bottom line. What's the good, the bad, the ugly. So we talk about due on sale clause. We talk about what happens if I don't make the payment. What's your recourse? What, what do you do to protect yourself? And we just lay it all out there. And it went very, very smoothly. I love so, it. You know, um, the, the key thing that you said there, Derek, and there was a lot of them, but you know, reading people's personalities and adjusting yours to speak to them in their language, how they want to be spoken to, is what separates okay salespeople from top grade salespeople. And you know, the no like and trust, the rapport that you built with them a year ago, and for them to call you back a year later, did you guys remarket to them or they just picked up the phone and called you? We did not remarket to them. They came through us uh, through social media on Facebook and yeah. they kept kept my contact information since that's April solid. of last year. Yeah, that's solid. It says um, a lot about how you guys sell. Yeah, and, and that's the other part is most people listening to this, you know, this show may not want to believe the fact that they are salespeople, but you we are all salespeople. A hundred percent everything we do in this business. It doesn't matter if we're talking to a seller or a buyer, a banker, an attorney, the list goes on and on and on, a contractor. We are constantly selling, but the definition of sales doesn't have to be a slimy car salesman. You know, the definition of sales in my mind is me convincing you to believe in what I believe in, right? So a preacher, a pastor, 
is a salesperson, you know, looking at it from that perspective and looking at it from the perspective of helping people getting them to get, come to a conclusion that we already have drawn in our mind that is in their best interest is really what I feel like I do very well. Yeah. And I think, you know, laying out the good, the bad, and the ugly up front and answering all the questions before they become objections is also a big thing when it comes down to building that rapport because it's you're, you're building the T factor. You're building the trust factor when you're doing that. You know, you're telling them all the shit that's going to go wrong that could go wrong, and this is how we'll address it. And just it, it separates. Those guys or girls that try to go out there and act like the slimy car salesman, and they talk fast, and they don't really answer the questions. They kind of skirt what they're saying, and they never really give concrete anything. I mean, you know, they can sell to a portion of the population, but they're not going to be able to connect with the full personality types that are out there because they're going to get read themselves, and they're going to be like, yo, this guy's a – this guy's a fast talking piece of shit. And when the markets shift, that's when we weed those people out. Yeah, because for sure. Anybody could sell a house the last two or three years. That is going to come to a screeching halt. And I, I love the market shifts. You know, there's, there's opportunity and everything. Mm -hmm, for sure. So these days, Derek, on your, I want your investment group first, right? Tell us the, the foundation. How many people are in your company currently and how many deals a year are you doing in that business? Uh, well, total staff through our lending company is, uh, I believe there's 11 of us. My real estate acquisition company, I've got uh, acquisition manager and his wife and then my assistant and I have a full-time project manager. Everything else we subcontract. Beautiful. So yeah, we've got about... I don't know, 13, 14 households relying on us to not make mistakes. So yeah. no pressure, right? Yeah. <laughs> let's uh, let's switch gears over to your your lending business. So over the years, I guess, from you just putting out good content, from you building up your network, you've had a bunch of people that started resonating with you and your message. And these people were like, hey, Derek, I want to start lending some money. Yeah, it started on a local level. So when I met Jeff, he was running the, the real estate investor association group in green Bay, Wisconsin. And from there, he helped me start a group in my city where I live. So we're, I'm about an hour and 20 minutes um, from my business partner. And um, over time, we just networked with all the other groups and eventually we merged with uh, this one umbrella called Wisco Ria and the Wisco Ria has seven locations out of the nine in the state of Wisconsin. So we became the preferred lender throughout that chain of Rias, including the two that we don't have any ownership of or control of. And through that, our educating, standing in front of the room, telling people, you know, creative deal stories or just what we're talking about now, that's how we we built up that that initial pool. Right. It was people that had some money that didn't know what to do with it or couldn't find deals. And then the people that needed the loans. So the, the majority of our lending business has been word of mouth, both from raising capital and deploying capital. Are you doing with your investors, you putting it into a pool or are you doing one offs? We used to do a lot more one offs. Now it's primarily in a fund and. So we pay our investors 9% on a, you know, annualized return. 
and everything is spread out. What the number of loans that are funded by our fund, that's how their money is diversified. And then everything is secured with first position mortgages. Mm-hmm. We, we lend out to 70% of the after repair value. So I will say until recently, we, you know, we average, like I said, about 20 loans a month. So you can do the math. These are six, yeah. six month loans. Um, till recently, we've only had nine properties that we've had to take back in the last 10 years. It's good underwriting. So we've had a very, very low default rate. And the last few months, we've had about six or seven default. I think we're only going to actually have to foreclose on two because those people just stopped communicating. And yeah. it's no surprise there, though. You see the market starting to shift. And now that's when people, the investors who are borrowing, are starting to go south. Well, the reason I'm bringing it up is because. I think your listeners can get something out of this, right? Everybody that comes to us to get a loan is pie in the sky. They want to use the highest comps, the lowest scope of work costs, and everything's going to you know, get done on time and it's going to sell or get refinanced perfectly with no hiccups. Well, as lenders, we got to call bullshit because our job is to look at what if you do fail and what's your plan B? So many of, of the people that are borrowing money have had the plan of, of doing the burr, you know, and they were going to get it fixed up using our short term capital and then refinance. They did not do cash flow analysis six months ago based on a 7% interest rate. Yeah. They did it based yep. on a 4% interest rate or something along those lines. And now, six months later, their loan is due and they're they're looking at saying well we can't cash flow it anymore so now we're going to try and sell it and that's taking more time and i I just i can't tell you billy how many people set themselves up for failure because they're just plain lazy Hmm. like you're not going to have four percent interest rates forever why do you not run a cash flow analysis based on multiple scenarios and have multiple exit strategies but we are seeing that more and more do you think that's a you think that's due to to newbies or is this guys who are seasoned as well that are just lazy as you put it it's a mix i mean it's certainly the newbies will will probably be more common with that but you you even see the ones that that have been in the business for five years made this mistake honestly billy if i see somebody that didn't start in this business until after 2010 or 11 they have never seen what you and i saw like we had we saw the end of the movie we 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 got the spoiler alert right we got the t-shirt never want to wear that t-shirt again i'm pretty sure you, you don't either but we you know it's easier for us to see these shifts and see when people are making mistakes mm-hmm. we can tell somebody whether it's an applicant or somebody at a at an event that we're speaking at we can tell them all the warning signs and and explain to them this is going to happen and they just believe in their own heads it'll never happen to me i'm too good for that to happen to and i was there in 07 i thought my shit didn't stink too but i was wrong so it's it's our job as lenders as educators as speakers to try and spread that message and but we can't do it for them they've they've gotta they've gotta grow up right like they gotta just i almost said man that's not politically correct so you know, gotta, <laughs> they, they gotta, they gotta get, they gotta get hurt a little bit, right? You don't really learn until you fail and we're yeah. all invincible until we get our asses pounded. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, once you really take a beating once or twice and you realize what the implications are and then you look back, you do a mental rewind, you're like, shit, the writing was on the wall. And because I was all high and mighty and things were looking so good, you know, I didn't plan for X and I didn't watch my overhead and I didn't cut back when I should have. And I grew too fast. I mean, look, hindsight 2020, we're all brilliant. But when you're in the mix, you're not. And to your point, the guys who got into this business, guys and girls after 2010, 11, they've not experienced what is about to happen. Now, I don't I don't think I don't know what your view is, but I don't think we're going to have a tsunami like we had in 2008. I think there's going to be a shakeup. I think there's going to be a nice correction, which is going to shake a lot of people out. But I know people today in this market, mostly West Coast, California, Arizona, some of the Midwest states where their their values have already plummeted 10, 15 and 20 percent. And I'm not we're not seeing that yet. East Coast, I think the wave, you know, it takes a little bit more time for some reason to hit us over here. But there's guys out here in the East Coast that they're still buying off today's ARVs and today's cash flows if they're doing rentals and they're not forecasting out what's about to happen. And they're going to get banged up. Oh, yeah. And that is one of the, the luxuries of being in the Midwest. We don't have the huge runs up or down. Yeah. But, you know, we still have to be very mindful of what's coming but we've got a little bit more grace and we're not in a sexy investment environment where we live, but we've got stable jobs, stable, you know, revenue, and you can really build a solid business on that. That was the other thing from 2007. You know, I don't buy anything today based on appreciation. If I can't cash flow it, my offer is going down or I'm not doing a deal period. Mm-hmm. And, my other pet peeve is people that have been using their their personal homes as piggy banks and taking out lines of credit against their personal houses. Because that's been going on forever, dude. That's yeah, been happening. And, and they think they're they think this is the best strategy ever. Well, been there, done that, damn near lost the house. Don't ever risk your personal residence that you put a roof over your family's head. To me, that's just foolish. But I, I learned that the hard way, right? But, but you had to learn it the hard way. And that's the key yep. point. They're not going to learn unless I, I was in your shoes, dude. I, when I had the mortgage bank, I did a, uh, the first was a $4.8 million, $4 million line of credit. To, it was a debt that I could convert over to equity. They brought it in. They had me sign personally on that, which when the company went to fault, I was liable. But then I had a million dollars on top of that. And my primary residence was part of the blanket loan that they did. And when shit hit the fan, man, it was, it was not fun. You know, here right. I am. I had, you know, I thought I had 100% equity in my house, not realizing, well, realizing, but thinking to myself, holy shit, I did this blanket loan. I'm encumbered. I'm in default. They're going to take everything. And it is it is not a good feeling when your primary is going in the foreclosure and all your other rental properties and investment properties have been already foreclosed on and you're $14 million in a hole. Like it, it really, you a man really looks himself in the mirror is like you're gonna realize what you're made of <laughs> to try to get through this not easy no it's not it's not but that's part of the things like we're talking about what's coming up and what we learned in the past i think it's it's like i mentioned earlier christmas i mean to be able to go now defaults are are increasing so there's going to be more foreclosures to go and be able to catch up somebody's loan and take it subject to a two to three and a half percent rate locked yep. for another 20 some odd years. That's fantastic, especially in the Midwest, because I can cash flow. I can buy a house with zero equity and cash flow it 
if I got a 3% rate lock for the next 20 mm -hmm. some years. And so that's one strategy that I have almost no competition in my area. I teach people how to do it. They still don't do it. Options is another one. I love using options. Almost nobody in my area does it. So. Explain, explain the options. We use them out here. Not a lot, but, but often enough. Talk to the audience about options, what they are. You talking lease options? You talking buying options? What are you talking? Both. So, I mean, if you use a lease in, in conjunction with it, it's just yeah. so that you get control of the property. Yep. You know, so I'm using a lease and an option on this deal I, I mentioned because the lease gives me the right to use the property and I'm not living in it. I'm working on it, but I still use a lease for that. The option is, is the separate document that gives me the, the, the right to buy it at a predetermined price for a predetermined amount of time. But I've got other straight options out there that didn't involve leases where, you know, I had one, the gentleman was behind $4,500 on his property taxes. And it was the, to the point where the, uh, the judge was taking the property away. I actually had to appear in court with cash and pay that in cash, which blew my mind why they wouldn't take a cashier's check. But anyways, so I, I paid his $4,500 property taxes and I have a 10 year option to buy his property for $18,000. That's worth at least a hundred. Damn. Right? And I, it's just, I do that stuff with my retirement account. Like that's just a, a good little investment and he's still living there. And I have no intentions of exercising that option. I actually did that to help out a family friend. And, you know, in the future, when, when he's no longer using it, either by choice or he passes away or whatever, great, I'll go exercise my option. You know, another good way to use options is what if you find somebody that, that's got some work they really need on their house? Maybe they need a roof. The roof is really bad. They don't have the 10. I'm sorry, what did you say? What's a roof? Uh, well, you would call it a roof. Um, <laughs> But uh, the the correct pronunciation would be rough. Um, I'm just busting need, you walls, they bro. Need shingles on their damn house. Uh, you know, approach them and and offer them to or offer to them to pay for the the shingles and and but pay the contractor directly. Don't give the money to the homeowner in return for an option to purchase their home, and it might be ten years, twenty years. That's a another great one to do with a retirement account that's got a small dollar amount in it go and control yeah. and once you have that option you don't have to be the one to exercise it that option is currency you can sell it trade it use it in another deal as collateral like there, it's got so many different uses so let's let's talk about how you do your options right so I'm going to use the, the guy who was behind $4,500. I'm just going to say, you said he owed like 18,000 properties worth, maybe let's just call it 120. Yeah. Are you recording the option at the courthouse? No. You're not I, recording the option. I do not. And this is something that not a lot of people talk about. I record a mortgage securing the option at the courthouse. And that mortgage is for how much? What's the face value of the mortgage? Face value that it states on the uh, is going to be my strike price, what I'm buying the property for. Got it. But How, Billy, why do you think you would record a mortgage instead of recording the option itself? What's the pros and cons to it? Well, the mortgage is going to encumber the property with an actual debt. It's going to put the world on notice. And I think it's going to be a little bit hard. It's going to be a lot harder for title insurance to come in and for somebody to sneak that option off the property. That's a couple of major points. Absolutely. 
The other real reason I want to do it is if I record the option, then people can go and read my deal. They can see all the terms of my deal. But the other thing that I do is when I get an option, especially if it has a lease involved with it and, it, and my intention is to sell it fairly soon, I will also have power of attorney over that property. And in most cases, I'll go back to the deal we were talking about earlier that I just signed on Friday. I will have power of attorney, a lease, an option, and a mortgage securing the option. I will fix up the property and I will list it on the MLS as power of attorney for the current seller. The reason I do that is because if my buyer, my end buyer wants to use FHA financing, for example, if I try and double close, yeah, you can't. I can't. Seasoning of title is, is an issue, but I can sell it from directly as power of attorney from the current title holder to my end buyer. And I get paid on the HUD as a mortgagee payoff. And that goes through underwriting every time. Not a problem. I love it. So it's similar to innovation, a little bit different, but similar. Yeah. How do you how do you stop them from encumbering the property with other other debts, other mortgages or even judgments for that matter? Well, that's the beauty of having the mortgage in place, because you can't really stop judgments. But if somebody tries to refinance, they're going to contact the mortgage holders. And they're going to find out what's your payoff because they don't want to be in junior position behind us. Right. So we've had those phone calls of some title company or a lender is calling us direct saying, well, what's your payoff for your mortgage? Well, gee, I don't know. Let me think about this. Hmm. Whatever I want it to be, whatever they're willing to pay me. Right. Yeah. But we have it in our option documents that they're not allowed to encumber it intentionally. Again, it doesn't stop if they, uh, got a judgment against them, but that's the other power of having the mortgage. So on the, on the judgment side, just look at this. What's the reason that you're not putting it into some sort of a trust to isolate the property from having any type of judgment from the individuals get attached to the property? I guess I've never considered that an issue. I, I try to deal with people that are, that are above board. And I know we can't always know that, Right. But if I was doing an option deal with somebody that that was just about to file bankruptcy, I'm not doing an option deal. Right. right? Like, like I'm very picky on who I do business with, whether it's the lending business or real estate. We, we have a no assholes clause in our company. We just don't want to deal with people that are hard to deal with. Yeah. And if I smell anything that's that's kind of sketchy, I just won't move forward with the deal. Putting it in a trust, it still wouldn't prevent it from getting judgments. It's just another layer of anonymity, but it, it to try and explain to a homeowner, you're going to have to spend X number of dollars to put this in a trust, or I'm going to spend that much money to put it in a trust. And now we have to have a trustee and a beneficiary and all these extra moving parts is, is kind of tough to explain to a, a lot of home sellers. They, they just want to push the easy button. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To me, having the mortgage securing the option gives me the power to foreclose and wipe out those junior credit creditors if I need to, even if it's a friendly foreclosure. And we've never had to do it, but but we have the right to do it and the ability to do it. So I love it. These are good little nuggets, man, that I'm sure the people listening are going to get get something out of for sure. Derek, do you, um, I know before we got on, you said you're writing a book and it's coming out in, in December. What's this book about? 
the book I'm authoring myself is about the lending business. It's all about how anybody could be a private lender. All the steps from application through underwriting to, you know, what do you do to service the loan and through the payoff, really uh, a construction worker's guide to becoming a private lender. You know, the, the redneck guide to uh, private lending, I guess. I got to, I actually have to think of a title for it yet. I like the red guy. <laughs> That's fucking funny. I think I like that one actually. I gotta write that down. But yeah, it's funny, man. But it it's it's something that I never really saw myself being. I thought this was something that you know the the older generation does when they're they're just sick of buying and selling property and they got a bunch of money. Our entire lending company is built on arbitrage. I mean, yes, we lend some of our own money, but it's it's really all arbitrage. So anybody can be a lender. And, and it was something that Jeff said to me, my business partner said to me early on, because I was brought up in that mindset of get 100 rental units that cash flow $100 a month and you're going to make $10,000 a month and then you can leave your job. And that same sales pitch that I was hearing in 2003, I still hear today, but the numbers haven't changed, which is kind of interesting. Crazy. But then Jeff said to me, how much time does it take to manage 100 rental units? managing it yourself. And I said, well, that's a full-time job. He said, how much time do you think it takes to manage a hundred loans? I had no idea. And the answer is a couple hours a week, you know, but you have all the control. The lender typically has the most control in any transaction. Yeah. And we can do it from anywhere. So we travel the country, we travel the world, we've got great staff. And we can we can do it from anywhere. And I'm not worried about contractors showing up or all this other crap that I used to have to deal with. So it just became the 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 best move for us was to grow the lending company. Yeah, the only thing that that sucks and it's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem is you paying you paying ordinary income and that money that you bring it in. Well, and that's why we still have real estate acquisitions. Yeah. And yes, yeah. yeah, Uncle Sam yeah. loves you if you don't have other things to offset. No that. doubt. Yep. Yep. No doubt. How do people, I know your book's not coming out to December. How do people get a copy of it? So if they simply send me an email, my first name, Derek, D-E-R-E-K at best funding.com and just say, Hey, I heard you on Billy's show. Uh, I'd love to get on the list for the book. And when it's out, we'll send you the, the electronic version. I got to be clear about that. I'm not sending everybody a, a, a hard copy. And then there's a second book that I'm co-authoring with a bunch of other uh, really cool people that is uh, being published by a guy named Kyle Wilson. And Kyle Wilson was Jim Rohn's business partner for 19 years. Beautiful. So I'll, I'm going to give everybody both of those books when they're out. Yeah, just shoot me an email. That's as simple as that. And I monitor my own email and my assistant monitors my email. So it's, you know, I, I have no problem answering questions within reason. You know, so that's how you get a hold of me. And uh, so besides email, social media, what else? How do people check you out online? Yeah, I mean, Facebook is primarily where people find me. LinkedIn, just under my my full name, Derek Dombeck. And uh, beyond that, I mean, we're doing a fair amount of, of public speaking out there. And, you know, some regional, some national, just depends. We, we put on a conference ourselves. That is actually a conference we took over from our former mentors and, and great personal friends now and used to be on a cruise ship. Now it's on land and eventually I hope it gets back on a cruise ship for uh, logistics reasons. 
It's called the Generations of Wealth, and it's going to be in Mexico, Cancun, Mexico, February 2023. That we're really proud of it, Billy. It's it's for advanced real estate strategies. So a lot of the stuff that we were talking about on the show and all the fancy creative stuff, that's that's what we talk about. We got about 10 to 12 non-selling speakers. It's not a pitch fest. Yeah. And we have people speak from nine until one. It's a five-day conference, nine until one. The whole afternoon through dinner is networking, hanging out at the pool, playing volleyball, whatever, right? We're at an all-inclusive, beautiful resort, swim with the dolphins, do whatever you want. We come back in the evenings for a, a town hall session for a couple hours, a little more interactive. And uh, we do that for five days. And the the other part of it is I encourage people to bring their kids, especially kids that are 10 and, 10 and older. So my daughter, I have three children, 16, 11, and five. My 16-year-old has a network of other kids who have parents that are freaks like us from all across the country. And can you imagine if these kids can build a network in their preteen and teen years Forget it. That we didn't do. What doesn't even matter if they go into real estate. It's just what it does for their their lives. Like I told you, the biggest mistake I made was not having a network the first half of my career. And we're taking that extremely seriously, including with our kids. So I don't charge any admission for the kids. They can be involved in as much or as little of the conference as they want. And uh, I think last February's conference, we had 18 kids there and about a dozen of them sat through damn near everything. Nice. And, uh, it was it was really great. So entrepreneurs in the making. How do people uh, register for that event? Uh, GOWVoyage.com, which simply stands for Generations of Wealth. Voyage.com. GOWVoyage.com. And I, I'm not going to lie to you. It's not a sales pitch, even though I'm a salesman. I did not get a huge room block at this all inclusive. Like this is not going to be some 300, 400 person event. We're really going to be at about 125 to 150. Like this gets pretty intense and pretty intimate for that reason. So, yeah. Good, good stuff, brother. So listen, I enjoyed the conversation thoroughly. You're uh, you're a really good dude from Wisconsin. What did you call yourself before? Uh, A hick? What did you say? What kind of name of the book? Redneck, uh, redneck, redneck. Redneck's Guide to Private Lending. I love it. I love it. Honestly, really, you're an interesting dude, bro. You have a good personality. You're doing some amazing shit. Love it. You're a type A driver just like me. We make shit fucking happen, charge forward. And I love the fact that you read people. I want to know, last question, mm-hmm. how did you read and sell your wife? Because I heard like, you know, you, you traded up in the marriage. How did you sell this one? I married, I married up. Yeah. You married up. She lost a bet and she had to honor it. Um, <laughs> listen, man, it, when you understand how it works and how negotiating and reading people and controlling the frame of every social interaction really happens, it can be used for, for good, but it can be used for bad, too. And you mm-hmm. can manipulate people and, and you shouldn't manipulate people. And I didn't manipulate my wife as far as she knows. <laughs> but, yeah, the reality was I... I definitely married way above my pay grade, but I, I married the farmer's daughter from down the road who had the same ethics as I have and, uh, you know, hardworking work ethic, pound through it, like stood by my side through thick and thin when we were, when we lost everything. And the part that I didn't talk about that, you know, I do talk about publicly, but 
same time frame as we lost everything, we also uh, were trying to raise a family and couldn't do it naturally. So we uh, we had to grow our family to the tune of about a quarter million dollars through adoption and in vitro and a bunch of other stuff. We've got three awesome kids, but good like, for you, man. That, that adversity, you, man. it's it either it's either gonna destroy you or make you stronger than ever, and that's your choice. It's hundred percent your choice. No doubt, bro. No doubt. Congrats with everything, especially the family. Honestly, really good conversation. I appreciate you, bro. I will see you next time around. Thanks, Billy. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Unstoppable Real Estate Investing Wealth. My mission is to give you, my listeners, the blueprint for success, the insider secrets for starting, growing, and scaling your real estate investing business so you can experience and live the unstoppable lifestyle. I've made it simple for you. To catapult yourself to success, go to billyssecrets.com. That's B-I-L-L-Y-S secrets.com. There you will find every single tool, tip, trick, strategy, system, and secret used to make millions of dollars as a real estate investor. Everything my team uses and my guests use all in one place for you to tap into so you can start, grow, and scale your real estate investing business. I really hope you implement what you're learning. I hope you utilize these tools, tips, tricks, strategies, and secrets, and I hope to see you on the next episode. God bless. Bye-bye.